We're going to come right back to the Song of Songs, but if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is what we'll be starting in just a second. It's good to be together, to see everybody, for us to be able to worship and encourage each other as we already have. It's always a good day. Uh, and like was mentioned earlier, uh, days like today are especially good days. Um, in this time of year, I think, right? I think we're in the two-week window, maybe three-week window of perfection. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's good. It's fine. You can get, if you forget to wear a jacket out, you'll be okay. If you wear a jacket, you won't be too hot. Uh, everybody's pretty pleasant and happy. Uh, there's all kinds of interesting food creations that everybody's starting to do. I'm not a cinnamon spice or whatever it is, a pumpkin spice or whatever, but some of y'all are into that stuff, and that's great. It's a great time of year for y'all. Uh, you can still have regular food, or you can start doing soups and all that kind of stuff. It's just perfect. I mean, I know some people are going to be spring fans or summer, and I, maybe there's some winter people out there. But all of those have some problems, right? If you got allergies, springtime, not for you. Summertime, come on, it's too hot. Some days at least. Uh, you get to go on vacation and whatnot, but it's hot every other time. And uh, winter, uh, we're, we're just going to think happy thoughts. We're not going to talk about it right now. It's fine. You know, it's fine. We're not going to talk about it. But you get, even that, you get the hot. But my point is, right now, it's just kind of perfect, you know? Amen. And we enjoy that kind of stuff uh, because perfection is not something we get to enjoy very much in this flesh, in this world. But in the beginning, but, but, but longing for, for, for perfection is a, a deeply human thing because God made us perfect. Right. And he made everything perfect Amen. in the beginning. Amen. There was no sickness. There was no bad weather. There was no um, economic strife. There was no racism. There was no hate. There was, no, there was none of that stuff in the beginning. Everything was perfect. The environment and the ecosystem were perfect. Human nature was perfect. The relationship between man and God was perfect. And so was one of the areas of, of human experience where we find the most imperfections and maybe the place where we long for perfection most and are so frustrated when it's not there, and that's in marriage. Read with me in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23, where when God brings uh, woman and man together, it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, in the beginning, were both naked and were not ashamed. There's no problems. There was no barriers. There was no conflict, no insecurity. Everything was perfect in the beginning when it comes to marriage, like everything else. Um, and yet we know this is not how things persist. In all things that are broken and messed up in this world, uh, marriage is a struggle. And we could talk about a lot of theological reasons why we don't have time to get into today, but uh, can it be right? Can it be good? Can it be what it ought to be? And fortunately, God, like in all things, gives us wisdom for how to navigate the world we live in, where things are not perfect anymore, but we can be perfected. We can find what's good. We can uh, end up living in something as it ought to be. And the book of Song of Solomon is such a book where God gives us wisdom for marriage, wisdom to accomplish what this text says here, that the two shall become one flesh. The two become one, which is what Jesus said even. Jesus doubles down on this in Matthew chapter 19, as we talked about recently. Uh, this is what we're going for, for husbands and wives. So I'd like us to spend some time thinking about what it takes to become one flesh. And if you would, go with me to the book of Song of Songs, chapter 4. Song of Songs, chapter 4. Uh, we, we covered the first three chapters of Song of Solomon uh, a few weeks back. 
And I want to reiterate a couple things right now that I said then. Um, number one, you may be, uh, there's, th there's three categories of people. I think it's three that I'm thinking of that, uh, that, that we are right here. There's those of us who are married, those of us who are not married and may never be or ne may never be again. And then there's those of us who are not yet married but may pursue marriage in the future, right? And then there's a, a fourth category that really isn't a category. It's all of us. All of us know people who are married. If you're sitting in this room, you know some people who are married. If you're a human being, you know some people who are married. And this wisdom is really important for all those groups of people, all of us, right? So let's just start with all of us. All of us have a duty and responsibility to help and encourage each other in our walks with the Lord. That means even if you're not a married person, the wisdom of God for marriage is pretty crucial so that you can know how to help and encourage and exhort those who are married. Not with your opinion or your experience. You don't have any, but you don't need that. God never says to exhort and encourage primarily, at least through your experience. You do it through the wisdom of God. And so this is really crucial for that reason. Obviously, for those who are in marriage, this is important. It may be convicting. It may be corrective for us. Or it may just be an encouragement to keep on doing good that's already being done to live in the right way. And, of course, obviously for those who one day uh, hope to be married or will be married, it's good to learn something before you start doing it. The best time to learn to drive a car, at least some of the fundamentals, is not when you get behind the wheel. It's to have somebody coach you up, read a book, watch somebody do it, hear some things, ask some questions, and then get behind the wheel. And then you really have to learn how to do it. But it's good to... Uh, to learn some things beforehand. So this is really important stuff. We looked at the first three chapters a few weeks back and focused on how the, the beginning of this story uh, in the Song of Songs tells about two people who are in pursuit of marriage. So ostensibly it was a, a, a God's wisdom for dating. I don't know that God would call it that, but we're going to, uh, God forgive us if we're speaking out of turn there. But uh, that's pretty much what we saw in the first few chapters. And that's the story in the beginning of the book. It's two people who are, are pursuing marriage, pursuing one another, desiring each other and wanting to be together. And then at the end of chapter 3, they're actually married. They have their grand wedding ceremony. And the rest of the book is about the journey of these two people in their, uh, in their marriage. So what we're going to do is briefly outline the story in chapters 4 through 8. We're not going to read every passage, of course. Uh, we're going to briefly outline the story. And then I want us to step back and see what wisdom does God give us through the story of these two people in, uh, in the Song of Songs. Uh, I'm also, like Cliff, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Obviously, read from whatever translation you want, but I will tell you, if you can switch to one, it may be advantageous to you to read from the same translation just because some of the poetic devices in this book are a little stranger and more different than uh, maybe other places, so it'll match up more easily if you're reading from the same translation. I want us to go ahead and dive in. Chapter 4, verse 1. You ready? Here's these two people who become one. What's their story? What's their journey? Chapter, uh, Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, chapter 4, verse 1. Here, the husband speaks to his beloved on their wedding night. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes, or lambs, that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. We made this observation last time we were in Song of Songs. Some of this stuff, not exactly how we would talk to somebody. It's not like, girl, your teeth are like some lambs. You know what I'm saying? Mm. All of them are there. Okay, that doesn't, that's not, some of this stuff doesn't translate. You know what I mean? But it does. You get it, right? Like he's speaking, it's an agrarian agricultural pastoral society that's living in nature, and he's using nature imagery to talk about her in complimentary ways. They may not seem complimentary to us, but they are. Okay, let's keep going. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, 
built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards, these far away, maybe dangerous places. Leave those places. Come to me, he says, verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. The early days of this relationship, which we're seeing here in chapter 4 that goes pretty much to the end of the chapter, is passion prevails, if we can call it that. There's nothing wrong. There's no unhappiness. There's no interjection by her of how she doesn't want to be with him or no statement by him of discontentedness or anything like that. They're enthralled with each other. They're, they're in, in, in the, the very throes of love here in this uh, passage. And it's a beautiful thing. And he uses such vivid imagery to talk all the most beautiful, powerful, majestic, honorable uh, images he can think of. That's how he speaks about his bride, his beloved, and the love they share with each other. Look down to verse 16. It says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Gardens or vineyards are used in the Song of Songs to talk about a, a person's uh, presence, uh, their whole self, really, and what they're able to share with one another. She says to him in response at the end of verse 16, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit. She here is inviting him in, and there's no, there's no barrier. Much like Genesis 2, verse 25, they were naked and not ashamed. There's perfection here in the early days of their relationship. He says, I came to my garden, chapter 5, verse 1, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. There's joy here, sharing completely of one another. And then there's... Uh, as often as the case throughout the Song of Songs, there's a sort of chorus of these friends who are supportive of or involved in this relationship in some way as, uh, as commentators or as uh, encouragers or as helpers in various ways. And listen to what they say. This love, which is, of course, something very personal and private, but you can see it permeates their whole life such that their friends' commentary on them is eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Be filled up with this. This is a beautiful thing as passion prevails. But that's not the whole story. Chapter 5, verse 2, she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. What does that mean? I slept, but my heart was awake. When's the time when you sleep and your heart's awake? She's dreaming, right? That's, what, that's the scene here. So she's dreaming. She, you, know, you understand that feeling where your heart is awake. I mean, you're not really conscious. You're not running the show whenever you're dreaming. But there's things that fill your mind and fill your heart as you lie there on your bed. What is she dreaming about? What's occupying her consciousness so deeply that it embeds in her subconscious and permeates her dreams? What happens? Chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my bride, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of night. So in this dream sequence, they're not together. There's actually a, a door, a barrier between the two of them. And he wants to be with her, but he's been out, away, uh, not doing something untoward because he's been out in the fields, presumably. His, his uh, hair is wet with dew. He hasn't been with some other woman in her home or something. He's been out there maybe working among the sheepfolds or whatever the case may be. 
but they're not together. Strange. Listen to what happens next. Uh, she, uh, she says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? I got myself ready for bed. I can't get up and go answer the door and whatnot, she's saying in the dream, of course. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. She wants to be with him. And so she arose, even though she just said she couldn't. Now she arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. You ever have that happen, by the way, in dreams, where there's some scene that the scene just cuts out of nowhere? She, he, he just had his hand knocking, and now he's gone in this sequence. So close, and yet so far and where did he go she doesn't even see the way he went because it's she says i uh, my soul failed me when he spoke he, she can hear his voice but she can't even see him i sought him but found him not i called him but he gave no answer he was just knocking and now i'm calling and he gives no answer the watchman found me although she has a similar dream sequence in chapter three where she found the watchman and she said hey can you help me find him i'm looking for him can you help me find him and it went pretty well that time but look what happens this time the watchman found me as they went about in the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. As she's searching for her husband, she gets wrecked by it. She gets devastated by it. Even in this dream, there's those who might be helping her, they're actually harming her as she searches for, for her beloved. And now, at least at this point, she wakes up from the dream. Verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, that I'm sick with love. What's going on here? Passion no longer prevails. It's not that happy, perfect beginning that we saw in chapter 4 where they're together and everything's just what it ought to be in the garden of love. It's not that at all. Uh, they've lost each other and they have to find each other again. Oh, can I just make a comment? This happens in marriages. I won't make a comment yet. I'm going to save it. Let, let, me, let me tell you a little bit more about the story, and then I want to come back to the comment. Verse 9, by the way, the, the, the daughters of Jerusalem, her friends, they say, what? What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Why are you telling us to go help you find him? What's so special about your man? And so she enters into a praise section similar to the one he had about her in verses uh, 10 and following. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. And she goes on and on. And then uh, in verse uh, 16, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So the daughters of Jerusalem say in chapter 6, verse 1, Where's your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where's your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? We get it now, they say. We'll help you find him. And she says in verse 2, My beloved has gone down to his garden. He's not, we're not together anymore sharing this, but he's gone away to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Now, she presumably has found him because he speaks directly to her now. Verse 4 of chapter 6. You are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Oh, great, we're fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good in this relationship now, right? No. Verse 5. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me, or yours may say captivate me. There's an insecurity, a discomfort. A, 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 don't look at me, he says. What happened with these two? And by the way, there's nothing in the text that indicates what happened. I don't know why she had this stressed out dream about losing him. 
I don't know why he's gone away to his garden doing whatever he's doing out there in the fields and doing the stuff that he's doing. I don't know why he says, don't look at me. You're overwhelming me. But something is wrong here. They've lost each other. What they had there at the beginning, something's occurred. Time has passed. And I don't know. Was it his job? Was it her job? Was it, uh, was it, did he say something or did she not say something? Did it have nothing to do with the two of them in their relationship? Did it have everything to do? Did, was it the kids? Did they want kids? Did he not want kids? And she did? What, did they, could they not? I don't know what the problem was, but I know this happens. That husbands and wives lose each other. Husbands and wives lose each other. And I don't mean they get divorced. That happens, of course. But husbands and wives just lose each other. There's a drift. There's a separation. There's something. People just grow. People even say this. We grew apart. There's a lot of growing language in the book of Song of Songs, by the way. And that happens. But notice that they don't give up on each other. They don't give up on this relationship. They search for one another. She, in particular, is searching for him. And whenever she finds him, he goes on into another. I'm not going to read it again because you guys get it. I mean, come on, these two need to get a room. They're just talking about each other, how much they love each other all the time and how beautiful and wonderful and all this kind of stuff. But that happens here in chapter 6. And in verse, uh, verse 11, she persists even after he praises her further. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom, which I think is imagery speaking of is, is it time for love? Are we, are we in business here? Are things growing? Are things what they ought to be? Verse 12, Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. said, yeah, we found it. We found each other again. Though he had lost what we had before, we've done the work and found each other again. And so then we have the third phase of what this book tells. And it's after passion prevails and after the two lose each other and find each other again, we see them bound in mature love. I don't know a better way to say it. There's a comfort. There's a depth. There's a rediscovery of the good things that they had found before and a new discovery of things that they had not found before about one another. He has yet another praise section. If you're keeping track, by the way, that's three times that he praises her for a number of things. We'll talk more about that in a second. And then she has her own with him in chapter 5. In chapter 7 in verse uh, 10, she says, I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let's go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let's, let's go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. And there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old. See that discovery and that rediscovery? They found the old and they're finding new things with each other now as they've gone through their struggle and their loss of each other. They found each other again. They're bound in mature love that's growing new and old, which I've laid up for you, O oh my beloved. And then she says something that it, at first glance, it's, this seems a little, again, uh, cultural difference, seems strange to us, but I want you to listen to what she's saying in chapter 8. Uh, she, he's already referred to her as my sister, my bride, or my sister, my love. And that's not any kind of untoward uh, sort of uh, uh, perversion that he's speaking to. But it's a statement of the security. Of course, when you think about some of the most secure relationships you have, what are they? They're the ones you have with your brothers and sisters, in the ideal at least. Because you know what? We're blood. We got to deal with each other. We were born together. We were raised together. We got to put up with each other. But actually, there's a great comfort and security that comes in that kind of relationship. And what he's saying is, is not only do I see you as someone who uh, allures me and, is, and thrills me and, and I'm drawn to as my bride, but there's a great security and a, a depth of comfort that I have 
in this relationship. And look how she talks the same way. She actually says while they're out there walking among the fields, going to build their new life together that they found again, she says, oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. Why would you want that? Well, if I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. People would be like, what are you doing? Hey, 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 stop that. You know, if you see a brother and sister embrace, like, oh, cool, they, they love each other. She says, I wish we could just embrace like that with such comfort and ease that nobody would even think anything's going on. That's how much I just want to love you all the time and express my love to you all the time. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. And then listen how she speaks about him. She made this comment earlier in chapter 2, and I think it's about verse 6. She says, his left hand is under my head. Here he's supporting her, using his strength to impart strength to her. His left hand is under my head. And his right hand embraces me. There's an intimacy and a closeness and a security that she has with him. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up love or awaken love until it pleases. And the people say, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he'd be utterly despised. Now, this is the story of a good marriage. Not a perfect one. They have times of loss, times of insecurity, times where he said, don't look at me, times when she said, where are you? I can't find you. But here in the end, they find each other again. They grow in that love. They find new uh, discoveries in their relationship. They rediscover the old good things that they had from the beginning. Um, God's telling us something here, y'all. God's telling us how to go about our marriage. All right, that's the story. What's the wisdom that we can derive? I want to I highlight three principles to you here from this story. All right. If you want to go back to chapter 4, we're going to look at some things there and we're just going to we're not going to recap the entire thing that we just did, but I want us to highlight a couple things along the way from this story. How do we navigate the the time when passion prevails and to feed that fire, to make it um, burn more brightly, to make it be a time of full joy and not to be a time where things can explode and blow up. I might note with you by the way uh, somebody, I was talking to somebody recently about chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, which we're going we're gonna to talk about in a few more minutes here. Uh, but the way they described it is they said, love, and especially romantic love, is like nuclear power. And I thought that was a great analogy. I think, I'm not a science expert, but from what I understand, <laughs> nuclear power is just the best. As far as just, if it was like, hey, if it blows up, everybody dies. If you delete that out of the equation, <laughs> nuclear power is the best. It's just the best option of anything. What's the problem, though? It blows up and people die. All right, so romantic love is the same way. It's the best, except too often it's not harnessed properly. It's not uh, navigated well, and so it blows up and it ruins people. More than, than broken love in almost any other kind of relationship, any other kind of love, people are able to recover largely. But the explosions that come in romantic love can really do lasting damage. And, of course, that's true in many forms of love but this one in particular. All right, so how do we navigate this? How do we make sure to make passion prevail and to make, harness that for something good? How do we find each other when we've lost each other? How do we grow into a mature bond as one flesh? How does this happen? First piece of wisdom we learn 
from uh, the story here that God gives us in the Song of Songs. Think and speak well of your spouse. Think and speak well of your spouse. I didn't go through all of them because honestly, it was just going to make me feel weird if I kept on reading to you guys all the, the ooey gooey stuff that they're saying to each other. But of course, this stuff is important. And I did want to read some of it out loud here. And you should read it and pay attention to this. Uh, God's not just playing around. God's not just, let's just throw in some more romantic stuff in there. It's noteworthy that there's three rounds of the man speaking in such an adoring way, such an appreciative way, such an admiring way toward his beloved. It's noteworthy that even when they're at, at a loss for each other, there's something wrong in the relationship, she launches into her section of telling, not just telling herself or telling him, but telling her friends. Her friends who are literally inviting her to dog him out. Did you notice that? What's your beloved more than another beloved? Chapter 5 and verse 2. Oh, chapter 5 and verse 9. Why is he so special? What's going on with your man? She could have said, you know what? You're right. Let me tell you about how he's not that much better than other men. And he's kind of all that. She had a chance, but she doesn't. She thinks well, and she speaks well of him. Uh, look at some of the ways that he, th- he speaks and thinks well of her in chapter 4. And this, of course, relates to both husband and wife of how we should think and speak well of each other. Uh, first of all, I, I love, and I know we mentioned this earlier, I love the fact that he uses this nature imagery. Maybe we wouldn't speak in the same way if we were to talk. First of all, I don't think many of us are poets like this that could speak in this way, and probably some of us just feel a little awkward if we tried to speak in this way, really. Uh, maybe we should try it, I don't know. Y'all let me know how it goes for you if you do it. But, um, but I do like that what this indicates to me is this man, whenever he was going around in nature... Whenever he looks at the sun, when he looks at the grass, when he sees sheep, when he sees goats, what does he think about? His beloved. All of creation points him to her. He's thinking about her. And think about her in positive ways. Similarly, whenever he sees her, he sees all the beauty of creation summed up in her person. That's an amazing thing as he sees all of her beauty and all the good about her. And we should note, we don't have a picture of these folks. Maybe he really does have arms like rods of gold and legs like alabaster uh, uh, pillars. Maybe he really does. Maybe her, I don't know. Maybe her eyes really were like the pools of Heshbon, whatever that means exactly, and maybe all that stuff. But you know what I kind of would guess? My guess is we would see these two people and be like, yeah, they're all right. But I don't know about all that. But he knew that. He thought that. Here's my point. Objectively, your spouse may not be everything, And it's not necessary for you to pretend like they don't have some problems. But it is important, what the wisdom of God teaches us here, it is important for a husband and a wife to think and speak well of one another, to accentuate the best, not to highlight the worst or the most flawed, but to encourage what's good and to appreciate and to admire what's good and to express that. And notice some of the things, of course, so much of what he says is about her physical beauty. Same with uh, her toward him. There's a lot of statements about their physical persons. Uh, but number one, I don't think we should think that means, oh, just find someone. You've got to have somebody beautiful or else your marriage isn't going to last. That's not the point at all. Actually, all these things should be symbolic. It's kind of like in the book of Genesis. You remember how Joseph is described? Um, Joseph, the son of Jacob, talks about how he's with the Lord and he trusted in the Lord and the Lord was with him. And then almost as a sign of that, it says he was very handsome in form and appearance. Like, well, what are you trying to say? Like, if I'm ugly, then the Lord's not with me? Well, no, but it's, it's highlighted as just a kind of little poetic way of describing, hey, look at this blessed person, right? These people are not just beautiful people on the outside. The point is that there's a holistic beauty about them. And notice he actually even highlights that. Verse 4. Maybe he's just saying, whew, 
girl, you have a great neck. Maybe that's his point in verse 4. But I don't think so. I don't think he's speaking from a physical, carnal sense. Because notice what he says about it. He says your neck is like the Tower of David. What is the Tower of David? Well, the Tower of David was this sign of majestic strength, of kingly power, of security for the people. And he speaks about her, the thing that her head is mounted upon as something like that, something majestic, something strong, something that has uh, like plates of armor around it, right? Again, does this mean that she had a muscular neck? Maybe not. Maybe the point is that he's speaking to her dignity and her strength as a person. Uh, that's, it's not all that he says about her in verse 10. He says, uh, chapter 4 and verse 10, How beautiful is your love, um, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils, than any spice. He's speaking about, and she, he taught, your lips drip, drip nectar. Verse 11, what comes from your lips? Words. When he says that your lips drip nectar, he's talking about the interactions that they're having. And that's something that's soothing to him, something that's pleasing to him. He prays her for the way she interacts with him. He speaks well of her and thinks well of her in that regard. Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. This language, whenever a person is described as a garden, it speaks to their sexuality. And here he's saying uh, she, and I don't know what her past was before she was with him, but I'll tell you right now what it is, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. She's uh, pure. He's honoring her character and who she is as a person. And in verse 9, notice that he's not just saying all these things that are about her as he speaks well of her. He says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. It's not just, oh, here's all these great things about you. He actually expresses what she means to him. You have taken my heart. You've captivated me. He's speaking well of her. He's thinking well of her. Not only who she is, but what she means to him. If we're going to grow in our marriages, if we're going to be the kind of husbands and wives that we need to, we got to learn to do this, to speak well of one another. So what's a couple of practical ways we should think about this? Number one, think and speak well of your spouse in such a way that you lift them up where they're down. Lift them up where they're down. Now, here's, here's the reason I say this. It's pretty clear, even what we read earlier. Remember in chapter 5, in that period of loss where they have to find each other? She comes to him, and he says, don't even look at me. I'm overwhelmed by it. It's something, I don't know what's going on with him, but something was wrong. There's some kind of insecurity. That she said, okay, you know what? I came all the way down here. Whether you guard, forget, okay, whatever. You come. Whenever you get yourself together, you come on and let me know. She doesn't do that. She stays right there. She persists. She lifts him up where he's down. And by the way, he's doing the same for her. If you go back to chapter 1, the first thing she ever says about herself is how she's, in her perception, and perhaps in society's perception, how she's not very desirable and not very attractive. Now, what he then proceeds to do is no less than three times tell her just how desirable and just how attractive she is to him. Do you see what he's doing? And by the way, I'm not going to go into all the detail, but if you'd like to, read that earlier section of the book and then read the sections where he speaks about her. He directly addresses things that she finds as point, uh, 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 marks of insecurity or unworthiness. He makes sure to highlight how the opposite is true. He thinks and speaks well of her in such a way to lift her up where she's down. We need to be aware of this. I'll just give you a New Testament passage on this. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding manner. Dwell with your wives in an understanding manner. Or some translations say, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. What part of, I think there's so much about that that I'm not really sure about. I'm working on every day to try to understand and live better. But at least part of what that passage is telling us as husbands is, 
is to try to understand what are the challenges she faces? What are the insecurities she has? What are the difficulties that she's carrying? And how can I respond to those in a way that would lift her up where she's down? If we're going to become one, as God has designed us to, we need to learn to think and speak well of each other uh, in marriage, lifting up your spouse where they're down. Second thing I'll tell you, practical application of this, gossip good about your spouse. Gossip good about your spouse. Remember chapter 5, that dream sequence. Oh, all is lost. He's not here. Where is he? Hey, girls, y'all got to help me find him. If you know where he is, you let me know. Well, what's special about your beloved compared to another beloved? She didn't say a thing bad about him. And maybe there was bad things to say about him. But she gossips good about him. She takes that moment to speak about his, his beauty and his strength and his desirability. This is my beloved and this is my friend, she says. This is my beloved and this is my friend. It's a huge temptation for us. And it usually has little to do, I think, with our actual spouse. Usually has to do with us and our own insecurities and challenges. But for sure, sometimes, yeah, our spouses are people. They got problems, all right? But boy, it's easy. When you get with all your buddies, hey, how are things going? Oh, man, you know, how's the old ball and chain or whatever it is people say. And I don't know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I don't know how girls do that stuff, but y'all apply it in your case, right? And I'm being a little silly, but it's actually really serious. Because what that does is I'm cultivating within myself not uh, good things toward my spouse, not admiration, not appreciation for the good things about them, but I'm actually emphasizing and elevating the bad things about them. we got to learn to gossip good. Y'all understand I'm playing fast and loose. Gossip is bad. But I'm saying the times whenever we would usually gossip to denigrate our spouse, to mock them, to speak ill of them, learn to accentuate the good about them. Uh, little interlude, time out. This is not to say that when there are legitimate problems in your marriage that you're not allowed to seek counsel, help, wisdom from someone. All right, That's the opposite. We need that. Okay, uh, But the, you know there's a big difference of when you go to someone that you think this person could maybe help us to do better as opposed to I'm just dogging out my spouse. I'm just talking bad behind them. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference in those two things. Uh, so I just wanted to make that. All right, last thing I want to say about this before we move on to another principle. Look at chapter 6. We didn't read this section, but I want to show you something in chapter 6 that's important. If we're going to think and speak well of our spouse, it means that we learn, seek to lift them up where they're down. It means that we're going to gossip good about them, not bad. And it also means... There's no comparisons. No comparisons. Look at chapter 6 and verse 8. He, speaking of her, this is during that period where they've lost each other and are striving to find each other again. Chapter 6, verse 8. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. And here's what they said about her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? When you look out in the sky during the daytime, is there anything else you can see except the sun? There's nothing. Even at night, you may be able to see some other stars, but is any star like the moon? None of them. There's no comparisons. 60 queens, 80 concubines, virgins without number. This is the only one. Now, we're back to where we, uh, something we said a few minutes ago. Objectively, you think she was the only beautiful, wonderful, honorable woman in all of Israel? No. But whenever you become one with somebody, they are your only one. And no comparisons. And we've got to make sure we watch out for this because it's easy to be like, well, if you would just, you know, I really think 
And we can do this, and we, we get sneaky about this. Well, I think he is just really good at blah, blah, blah. You might think about that. Or, you know, babe, I know you've been talking about wanting to, I don't know, do better with the kids or lose some weight. You know, you should really talk to so-and-so because they seem to have it going on in a good way. What are you doing? You're comparing. You're saying they're better than you. And you're doing that in your head, and you're doing that for them. Is that going to help this relationship be better? Is that going to deepen your appreciation and admiration for this person? It doesn't mean that you pretend like your spouse is perfect, but no comparisons. No comparisons. Don't talk like that to your spouse or about your spouse. This is the kind of attitude that we're pursuing. And remember, they were saying this during the part of the story where they had lost each other and are trying to find each other again. And it's in that moment especially that you need to make sure to think and speak well of your spouse. All right, so that's wisdom uh, lesson number one that we learned from this story. Lesson number two. If we're going to really become one flesh, to have that kind of relationship that God has designed from the beginning, you have to give yourself over completely and fully to your spouse. Give yourself over fully and completely to your spouse. Can you look at chapter 7 and verse 10? Oh, actually, no, no, I want to do it this way. Go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 16. This is something we looked at a few weeks ago. But there's an important, there's a little phrase that uh, morphs throughout the story. From the time here before they're even together as husband and wife in chapter 2. And then to the early days of their marriage during the times when things are a little strained and at odds. And then whenever they come to that point of maturity. I want you to listen to how she talks and notice the shift that occurs in these three texts. Chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. She says, My beloved is mine. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Look at chapter 6 now in verse 10. Oh, excuse me, chapter 6 and verse 3. Chapter 6 and verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Did you notice a little shift there? My beloved is mine, and I am his. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. One more, chapter 7 and verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. What has happened in the progression of this story? Do you see what happened? What's her first thought about her relationship to her man in the beginning? Her initial thought is, and by the way, I mentioned this last time, the main character is her in this story. Uh, and so that's why we get a lot more insight into her thoughts sometimes and, and that kind of her commentary. We get his interactions with her, but not so much his inner dialogue. We get some more of her inner dialogue like this. Anyways, so in 2.16, her thought is, my beloved is mine. That guy? belongs to me. Also, I belong to him. Right. Her second stage is, I am my beloved's. Her first thought is not, he belongs to me, but I belong to him. And he also belongs to me. But what about in chapter 7 and verse 10? What's happened in this mature bond of love? What's happened in chapter 7 and verse 10? I am my beloved's. And what belongs to her? Anything? I mean, she rejoices over the fact that his desire is for her, but she's actually out of the picture, out of the equation. This is reminiscent of what the, what the Spirit says uh, to husbands and to wives in a way in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember what Ephesians chapter 5 says to husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. 
He gave himself up. Do you hear how she tracks for us the mentality, the mentality shift that has to occur within marriage if it's really going to work? That you don't think, that's my wife, that's my husband, and also I'm, I'm theirs. Or to even think, uh, I'm that, I belong to that person, but they belong to me. But actually, real, real beauty in marriage happens whenever both people say, I belong to that person. And you know what? Fortunately, their desire is for me. They love me. By the way, this is the notion, we talked about how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself. This is the notion of submission. Whenever you submit paperwork, you hand it over to somebody else. Whenever a wife is married, she's to submit herself, to give herself over to her husband, just like the husband is to give himself over to his wife. If we're going to really become one in marriage, we have to give ourselves over fully and completely to one another. And what a lot of us want to do in marriage, I think, is we want to run in parallel, pretty close avenues, but parallel avenues. And I want my life to be right here. And we're going to have intersections, uh, bank account, vacations, kids, uh, shared interests. But ultimately, we're just running down our own streets. That is not the picture that God gives. It's not that the two shall become close. That's not what it said. The two become one. And the real reason in the moments when we're not one in marriage the reason is because I'm trying to run down my own street. I'm trying to keep doing my own stuff. And I'm not willing to give myself to my wife. Or as a wife, I'm not willing to submit myself fully to my husband. I'm still trying to hold on to my own way of doing things and what I really want. What we see in this story is two people who give themselves over fully and completely to each other. That's how they find that maturity. That's how they find the joy. That's how the passion that prevails is harnessed and made into something beautiful. So uh, let me, let's go ahead and say something here. Um, this book features one aspect in particular that's really critical, a critical discipline, and I'm going to use that word, a critical discipline, a critical habit that husbands and wives need to engage in as they give themselves over fully to each other. And that's in uh, physical sexual intimacy. Intercourse is where two people take the courses of their lives and intersect and intertwine them together. In a very real sense, God has designed the physical union that's to occur exclusively within marriage to be um, an expression of the bond that exists, right? In other words, the physical intimacy in marriage should come from desire that these two people have for each other, love and devotion that they have. It should be something that flows out of that. But it's not just something that flows out of that. And those of you who are husbands and wives know that it's not something that always you're always just feeling like this is the way it's going to go. Sometimes it's a discipline. It's a choice. And I don't mean it's a begrudging choice, but I mean that it's, it's an intentional thing. We need this. We need this. We need to become, we need to be reminded of what we've become. We need to remind each other that we are one and exercise that among ourselves. Because in godly, loving um, intercourse within marriage, Two people are giving themselves over fully to the other. Let me do another little interlude here to make a clarification, and then I want to get back to my point. Uh, oftentimes, the passage I'm about to reference, maybe not oftentimes, but if it's more than once, then it's too many, and we know this is used. Uh, the passage I'm about to reference in 1 Corinthians 7 is used at times for spouses, almost always husbands, to abuse their wives or to force their wives into sex acts 
that are denigrating or harmful or difficult or whatever the case may be, right? So that's not what we're talking We don't approve of that. If that's going on in your marriage, please talk to us so we can help you and exhort your spouse to repent and to treat you with love. But here's what the text says. And actually, I'm going to read it for you in 1 Corinthians 7 rather than just quoting. I want to read for you in 1 Corinthians 7 what this says here. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 3. It says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you hear what that says? Husbands and wives, their bodies do not belong to themselves. And once again, this is not permission for someone to mistreat because it's mutual um, giving up of oneself. The husband's, wife does not be, the husband's body does not belong to himself. It belongs to his wife. And the wife's body belongs to her husband. And because these are two people who've given themselves up fully, they're patient and tender and loving and uh, thoughtful about the other's needs and about uh, uh, all the matters that might relate to that. But ultimately, what this is teaching is that the sexual union that occurs within marriage is to be an exercise, a habitual exercise of husband and wife saying, I give myself to you completely, fully. Because that's the only way this one flesh thing works. And I'm not just talking about only in physical intercourse, but in everything in life. This is one ex important expression that God highlights. This book, many have said, and it's right and appropriate. It feels weird to say it. But so the Song of Songs is divine erotic poetry. That's what it is. We didn't read a lot of the sections that are more uh, uh, provocative. But if you read it, that is what it is. And that shows us how important the physical union is between a husband and wife as they learn more and more to give themselves over to each other fully. Are you all ready for me to stop talking about that? Okay, I am too. I am too. Third thing, go to chapter 8 of Song of Songs. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. This is where we started, and I want us to end right here. If we're going to go, if we're going to rightly and in a, in a constructive way, go through the journey of the initial days when passion prevails and navigate the times when we lose each other only to find each other again so that we can enjoy the marriage bond in maturity with strength, real strength, to really become one. We're going to have to learn to think and speak well of our spouse in, all, in very practical and specific ways. We're going to have to learn to give ourselves completely and fully over to our spouse. Um, but the real thing that's going to make all these things work is the love of God. And I know we always come back to the love of God, don't we? Doesn't matter what the topic is. That's what it always comes back to because that's what makes it all work. Chapter 8 and verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. A seal, of course, was something that would be put on uh, governmental documents to prove uh, authenticity. She says, make sure that I'm your only one that there's an authenticity, that there's a surety about our relationship and our love. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh Himself. Can you think about times when God's fire came down on the mountain uh, uh, with Israel at Sinai or with Elijah and those prophets, and God's fire came consuming. It was almost terrifying how powerful it was. That's what she says about real love, about the love that makes a marriage work, that nuclear energy that keeps it going, that makes it work. Verse 7, many waters, a flood, 
cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. And then the value of love. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his household, he'd be a fool. He'd be a fool. If he offered, traded out love for all the wealth he could possibly get, he'd just be a fool. So now I'm going to do what us preacher dork types do all the time. And we, we talk bad about people who at weddings quote that passage and we stomp our feet and we say, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about marriage. It's about the church and it's not. But you know why people read that passage at weddings? It's because that's what it takes. And it's true. It's not about marriage. Spoiler alert. 1 Corinthians 13 is about other relationships. But then again, I didn't tell you this earlier, but I'll tell you right now. Really, the stuff we've been talking about applies to all relationships. Thinking and speaking well of your brethren. Making sure to give yourself over fully to people. It has special applications within marriage, but this is how all relationships work. And love is the only thing that makes any of them work. And it is true. Husbands and wives, let's never forget love. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. And it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. And boy, are some of those hard for you in your marriage? Love hopes all things. Love believes all things. Love endures all things. If your marriage is going to work, that's what it's going to take. And might I add that the love of God, and that's what we're talking about right here, the love of God, the very fire of Yahweh Himself, the one who created all things, our Father in heaven, that love is not a love that's contingent on the other person's behavior. And a lot of times people cease to live as one flesh because I'll love you once you start. I'll love you if you would. I'll love you unless... The love of God is a love that goes beyond and supersedes whatever we might have done when we were enemies. He loved us. And I know, and I don't know everybody, I know this happens in your homes. You feel like you have an enemy across the room from you. Love them. That's the thing that's going to make you become one flesh. Again, to persist in this relationship that God's given you is to carry out the love of God. And I'll tell you, you can make all the money in the world, have a nice home, take good pictures for Instagram to make everybody think you have a happy marriage. But if you don't have love, it's like a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. You can have a bunch of kids who grow up and everybody thinks they're great. And people just think you're the most respectable, wonderful people. And maybe you feel kind of satisfied with that. But if you don't have love... You got nothing. We have to exercise ourselves in the very love of God himself if we're ever going to make this thing work. If we're ever going to find God's design from the beginning. If we're ever going to be one flesh. If we're ever going to be perfect. We've got to live in love. And when the perfect has come, all the other stuff will fade away. And that's the beauty that God gives for us.